I'm not sure if you heard, but last night the Edmonton Oilers scored six goals and the Montreal Canadiens scored two goals. Uh, I was going to wear my Oilers jersey, but I thought that might be a little too divisive, so here I am dressed as I normally am. <laughs> Just had to throw that out there. Now that that's out of the way, uh, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our worship, at least from our perspective on earth this morning, has been rich. Uh, we rejoice that Emmanuel has come and is coming again. We praise you for cracking into the hermetically sealed bubble that is this fallen world and rescuing us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you that as Christians we have so much hope, so much to hope for and anticipate, and we know that your promises are true. Lord God, as we open your word again now and look at this magnificent passage from Isaiah 11, we pray your spirit's attendance. Uh, Lord, we pray for alert hearts and minds, and Lord, may we leave this place later with an increase of joy uh, bubbling up from the depths of our being. Uh, that we would then carry through the rest of this Advent and Christmas season, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, and we thank you for your help. Amen. Well, about a year or so before April and I were married, uh, my brother Ross and I had a chance to visit Redwood National Park down in Northern California, and, and I must say that as we walked through that park, I felt pretty tiny. The giant sequoias and coast redwoods that grow there can reach heights in excess of 300 feet. Their diameter can be more than 30 feet. And these trees can live over 2,000 years, if you can feature it. In fact, the tallest redwood in the world is in that park. It's 379 feet tall. Uh, just to give you a contrast, the Statue of Liberty is only 305 feet tall. So Lady Liberty is 74 feet shorter than the tallest of the redwood trees. These massive trees are very resilient and very durable. Their bark, if you can believe this, can be up to a foot thick. And because there's such a high level of tannin in the bark, the trees are naturally protected from fire and from insects and from rot. So it's no wonder we have 2,000-year-old redwoods still standing on our planet today. Some of these trees were saplings when Jesus walked the earth. I think one of the most fascinating things that I remember hearing from the park ranger as we stood taking pictures of these very impressive trees is that there are documented cases of redwood trees that were cut down and processed into lumber that was then used to build houses. And in some cases, even after the wood was processed and cut and nailed into place, it still began to sprout new buds. Almost as if these trees have a built-in refusal to die. 
Well, friends, it's this image of the majestic redwoods and their resiliency and their heartiness and their resistance to dying that came into my mind this week as I meditated on our preaching passage, which is Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. In this passage of Scripture, we have the picture of an old tree stump that sprouts new growth sort of like the redwood lumber that refuses to die that sprouts new buds. Now, here's just a little bit about the historical context of Isaiah 11 as we try to wrap our minds around this a little bit. We know that the prophecy in this chapter was prophesied in the 8th century B.C., so about 730 years, give or take, before the birth of Jesus into the world. The reigning king in the southern kingdom of Judah during the time when this prophecy of Isaiah 11 came about was King Ahaz. And King Ahaz lived 13 generations after King David. So then the context of Isaiah 11 is 13 generations after David and about 730 years before Jesus. Now, in Isaiah 10, which is the chapter just before our passage this morning, God, during that time of Ahaz, had revealed that there was a day soon coming when because of Israel's persistent sin and rebellion, Israel would be overtaken by the godless nation of Assyria. Godless Assyria would be used in God's hand like a tool to bring judgment on Israel. But then afterwards, Assyria herself would be cut down by the Lord. Assyria would not go unpunished for their sin. They would be cut down like a tree by the Lord. So at the end of Isaiah 10, we have the image of Assyria sawn down like a lofty tree that's been chopped down by Yahweh, God of Israel. And then Isaiah 11 opens, and we have a further forest image. But now the focus switches from Assyria, the sawn down tree, to the southern kingdom of Judah. Watch this. Verse 1 reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Do you see the tree and forest imagery in this verse? We have words such as shoot and stump and branch and fruit. So let's take this just one chunk at a time. There there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now the basic picture here is the picture of a stump. When you cut a tree down, you're left with a stump. But the prophet says that a little green bud or a new little blossom or a shoot would emerge forth from the old, seemingly dead stump where the tree had been cut down. Now, the tree in question here that would be cut down was the dynasty of King David in Judah. 
the kingly line that had started with David and then had proceeded in David's bloodline. David was the son of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. After the stump of the tree, who was Jesse, David was the first main section of the tree, the first main section of the kingly dynasty in Judah. And then after David, further up the tree, we had Solomon and we had Rehoboam and so forth, up to Ahaz, 13 generations after David. Ahaz, who was contemporary with this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. The kingly dynasty in Judah, here compared to a tree, was going to be cut down by the Lord, reduced to a stump because of their ongoing rebellion against God. But Isaiah says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now let's notice this very carefully. Isaiah does not say here, that a new little green bud would emerge from the stump of David. If Isaiah had said here that new life would emerge from the stump of David, we'd be led to believe that what the prophet was talking about is simply and merely another king in the lineage of David, like Solomon or Reboam or Ahaz. But Isaiah says, notice it carefully, stump of Jesse, not stump of David. And so we're forced to ask of the text, why Jesse? The question becomes, what specific life emerged from Jesse in the first place? And the answer is, none other than David. A Jesse stump producing life produces a David. So that what Isaiah is saying here is that a new David will emerge on the scene, not simply a new king in the line of David. A new David. You get a David sprout from a Jesse stump. And it was inevitable that this Jesse stump though it appeared to be a dead and lifeless thing to anyone who was considering it, it was inevitable that new life would sprout forth from this stump. Why was it inevitable? Well, because God said in 2 Samuel 7.13 and 2 Samuel 7.16, he said that the throne of the son of Jesse, the throne of David, would be a forever thing that it would be established forever. This tree, this dynasty of David, could not die altogether. Like the redwoods' refusal to die as it sprouts buds after it's been made into lumber. The dynasty of David could not die altogether because God said so. And so even though the tree was cut down in judgment, said the prophet, it was yet going to sprout. Even after God's judgment came on Judah, there was yet hope for a new day and a new David. A new David would emerge out of the stump of Jesse. 
Now let's go to the second half of Isaiah 11.1, where we read, A branch from Jesse's roots shall bear fruit. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That word branch in the original Hebrew is very important. The Hebrew behind our English translation branch is the noun netzer. Netzer. Now track with me here. About 190 years or so after this prophecy in Isaiah 11, the people of God were returning to their land after their exile to Babylon had ended. When the people returned to the land, they founded and they established a variety of new settlements and new towns. And if you were a person who could trace your family lineage back to David, you would try to give your town a name that had significance in relation to David and David's story. Now remember our word netzer or branch in Isaiah 11.1. 1. One of the established settlements after the return from exile was a settlement called Nazareth better known as Nazareth. Netzer, branch in Isaiah 11.1, Nazareth, a town founded after the exile. The basic meaning of Nazareth or Nazareth is branch place. The people named this town branch place in the hope and with the prayer that the branch man who was prophesied two centuries earlier in Isaiah 11, might emerge from their town. And we know from the New Testament that Nazareth, the branch place, was a backwater, insignificant town that was not highly regarded by the masses. There's a little conversation recorded in John 1 between Philip and Nathaniel. And when Philip mentions to Nathaniel that this Jesus they found is from Nazareth, Nathaniel barks back in John 1.46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That question implies pretty strongly that the prevailing opinion was that this place called Nazareth was insignificant. It was an unlikely place for the Messiah to come from. But the Gospel writer Matthew says in Matthew 2.23 that Jesus had to be in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets, like Isaiah in Isaiah 11.1, would be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Or we might viably translate it that he would be called a branch. Jesus is the branch man, the new and better David from the stump of Jesse. Jesus is the sprout and the branch of Isaiah 11.1 1, that grew up in the branch place, Nazareth, about 730 years after Isaiah's prophecy. Amazing. Now let's come back to our Isaiah 11 text. 
Let's proceed after all of that to verse 2. Oh, this gets so good. What we have in verse 2 very significantly now is a sevenfold, mark that, a sevenfold description of the Spirit's relationship to the branch man who is Jesus Christ. Notice the seven things that are said of the Spirit and Jesus in this verse. First, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Lord, shall rest on the branch man. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on the branch man. Second, the Spirit who rests on the branch man, Jesus, will be the Spirit of wisdom. Third, the Spirit who rests on Jesus Christ our Lord will be the Spirit of understanding. Fourth, the Spirit of counsel. Fifth, the Spirit of might or power. Sixth, the Spirit of knowledge. And seventh, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. A sevenfold Description And the number seven in Scripture, we know, is a number of wholeness, of completion, of perfection. The idea here is that upon the branch man will rest the fullness, the utter completeness of Yahweh's spirit. Something that could never be said of David, although he had a measure of the spirit. In other words, the branch man will be no ordinary run-of-the-mill David. And the real proof that this branch man will be no ordinary David is found down in verse 6 and following, which I know is just slightly outside the bounds of our preaching passage. Or if we could put uh, Isaiah 11:6 up there, I think it's a couple of slides. There it is. Thank you. Uh, Let's go there briefly. So the description of the branch man king is given in verses 1 through 5. That's our focus today. But then right after that description, beginning at verse 6, we have a discussion of the state of affairs that will result from the kingly rule of the branch man. Simply put, God's entire creation will be transformed by the rule of this king. Wolves and lambs will dwell together. Leopards and goats are going to be hanging out. In verse 8, we have toddlers playing next to cobras and vipers. The branch man king is no ordinary king like David who ruled only in the confines of Jerusalem. No, this king's rule is going to result in the transformation of all creation. Are you hoping for that? I know I am. And it's coming. Let's go back to verse 2. Now let's spend time, a little bit of time, with each of the seven descriptions of the Spirit and Jesus. First of all, that description, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on the branch man. Now we've said already today that the branch man would be a new David or a better than David. In 1 Samuel 16.13, when Samuel had anointed David with oil, 
The scripture says there that the spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. So David was given the spirit to enable him to carry out his kingship. The spirit had come to rest on David. And then over in 2 Samuel 7.14 and also in Psalm 2.7, listen, God's king is called God's son. So that son of God, we need to understand, is a regal, kingly title that began already in the Old Testament. King David was son of God, who had the spirit of God resting on him. Well, what about the branch man Jesus, who is a new and better David? Is Jesus given the spirit for his kingly role? And is Jesus called Son of God? The answer is yes. It all happens in the span of just two verses in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. At the baptism of Jesus, what happens? He comes up out of the water, and the Spirit, the Scripture says, the Spirit descends like a dove on him, and a voice from heaven says in that moment, this is my beloved, what? Son, with whom I am well pleased. A kingly coronation ceremony, if there ever was one. Jesus is the new David and the branch man of Isaiah 11 upon whom the spirit of Yahweh rests. Jesus is the new and better David who is not just limited to ruling in Jerusalem. Jesus rules over all of creation and Jesus transforms creation. We're lifting Jesus high today in preparation for Christmas. Let's go to the second description of the seven in Isaiah 11.2. On this branch man Jesus, the new David, will rest the spirit of wisdom. In Proverbs 8, verses 15 and 16, wisdom is speaking there. And wisdom says in those verses, by me, by wisdom... Kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, by wisdom, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. Well, King David had reigned with wisdom. In 2 Samuel 14, verse 20, the woman of Tekoa observed in King David a wisdom like the angel of God, she says. What about the branch man and the new better, new and better David? What about Jesus? It's interesting to note that David's son Solomon was the king who was known especially for his amazing wisdom, wasn't he? Even more than his father David was. No one compared to Solomon when it came to wisdom. But in Matthew 12:42, as Jesus is talking about how the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, Jesus says something very interesting in that moment. He says something greater than Solomon is here. 
And, of course, Jesus was talking there about himself. The wisdom of Jesus Christ far surpasses that of the wise man Solomon. In our passage, Isaiah says, the spirit of wisdom will rest on the branch man. Christ is, he is, who is Jesus Christ for understanding anywhere. Instead, is a 12-year-old Jesus amazing the Jerusalem teachers with the understanding that he already had at age 12 in Luke 2.47. What we find in the gospel accounts is a Jesus who needs no person to testify or bear witness about people because Jesus knows what's in people. John 2.25. Upon Jesus rests the spirit of understanding because Jesus is Isaiah's prophesied branch man. He is the new and better David with the fullness of the spirit whose rule transforms all of creation. Fourth and fifth, says Isaiah, Upon the branch man will rest the spirit of counsel and might, power. According to the testimony of the disciples in Luke 24, 19, Jesus was a prophet mighty in word and deed in the sight of God and all the people. Upon Jesus, the branch man and better David, rests the spirit of counsel and might. Sixth, says Isaiah, upon the branch man will rest the spirit of knowledge. Again, according to Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge. Jesus is the branch man of Isaiah upon whom rests the spirit of knowledge. Do you know him today? Do you know this, Jesus? And then seventh, says Isaiah, the branch man will be characterized by the fear of the Lord. Now, according to Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, the fear of the Lord can be defined this way. He says, it's the kind of piety that makes one's life fully congruent and resonant with the intention of Yahweh. I like that. Again, the fear of the Lord is the kind of piety that makes one's life fully congruent and resonant with the intention of Yahweh. Jesus tells us over and over again, especially in the Gospel of John, that his very person and his very life are fully congruent with Yahweh. Take a verse like John 5:19. Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise." Fully congruent with the Father, full of a reverential fear toward the Father. Or take John 12:49. Jesus the branch man says in that verse, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus lived and spoke 
and acted and thought in full congruence with his father. Upon Jesus rested the spirit of the fear of the Lord, a fully alive reverence for the father. All we're trying to do this morning is to give you an enhanced, exalted vision of the branch man and king who was born in a manger to Mary and Joseph, a vision that you can carry into Christmas and find great abiding hope in. Behold your king, friends, behold your king, upon whom God's spirit rests in full measure. Think of it. Divine wisdom, divine understanding, divine counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of Yahweh are found blazing in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's go to verse 3 of our passage. The delight of this branch man, notice the word there, the delight, so this is talking about inner emotional life, the delight of the branch man and new and better David shall be in the fear of the Lord. What do you delight in? The delight of the branch man and new and better David shall be in the fear of the Lord. Yes, our King Jesus, the one we celebrate at Christmas, he delights in the reverential fear of his Father. In John 4.34, Jesus said this, My food, do you like food? It's Christmas time. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Isaiah says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And, Isaiah says, he shall not, what? He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So we see here now that one of the roles of the branch man is to judge. To look at a matter, to look at a dispute, to sort out the claims of the defendant and plaintiff. But notice the supernatural quality of the branch man's judgment. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Wow! Give me any judge on the human scene today, and I'll show you a judge that renders judgment based on what his eyes see, And what his ears hear. How can it be otherwise? A judge, a human judge, can only look with his eyes at the evidence that is presented to him. He can only hear with his ears the testimony that is offered to him. And then at the end of the day, the judge makes his best judgment. But sometimes we know a human judge's judgment based on seeing and hearing is just plain wrong. It can be a mistaken judgment. But Isaiah 11.3 talks to us about the branch man judge who judges cases using a different set of parameters than mere human judges do. The branch man's judgment is not concerned with what is apparent by seeing and by hearing. 
Rather, the branchman judge has ability, listen, to get past the apparent to the real and actual truth of every single matter. None of the dateline mysteries on Friday nights are mysteries to the branchman judge. He has ability to penetrate beyond all the apparent evidence and get to the nub, get to the truth of every human matter. Now answer me this question. Does our world need such a judge? Oh, how we need this judge. And he's come already and is coming again. Isaiah continues in verse 4. With what? Righteousness. He shall judge the poor. Righteousness is fundamental to the branch man. Every single decision, feature this, every single decision that he renders is righteous. Did you know that? Every judgment is a perfect judgment every single time. As one commentator has it, and I love this, he says, this king exercises absolute justice based on absolute knowledge. Now just imagine that for a moment. This branch man exercises absolute justice based on absolute knowledge. Isaiah says he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, friends, just imagine this with me for a moment. I know it's difficult, but imagine a judge who can't be bribed. Imagine a judge who cannot be influenced by money or swayed by powerful lobby groups. Imagine a judge and king who gives special protection and special care to the helpless, to the outcast, to those who lack political power, to those who lack financial clout. Well, this is the branch man. This is God's gift to the world on the very first Christmas. This is our sweet Jesus, the king of all creation who is coming again to make everything right. Praise God. The last part of verse 4 says that the branch man, listen to this now, shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips... So we've got mouth and lips here. He shall kill the wicked. Now, we live in a world today where so many of our quote-unquote leaders, most of our leaders, all of our leaders, are captured by pressure groups of one kind or another. And these leaders end up doing the bidding of the pressure groups if they want to survive the next election cycle. Isaiah is encouraging us in this last part of his oracle in verse 4. He's encouraging us to imagine a leader, to put our hope in a leader named Jesus the branch man, who, in the words of John Oswald, owes allegiance to no earthly pressure groups. Did you hear that? 
Oswald says this, that phrase in Isaiah 11.4, the phrase, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, expresses the moral force, the moral force possessed by a leader who owes allegiance to no earthly pressure groups. Oswald says, he can say what needs to be said, imagine this, he can say what needs to be said in a given circumstance, and the force of the truth is undeniable. The word itself becomes his weapon. (laughs) Wow. Consider with me, just for a moment, the force of the branch man's mouth. Jesus is the one who affected people with astonishment when they listened to his words Because as Matthew 7.29 tells us, Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The scribes were the highest authorities in the land of the time when it came to religious teaching. But the the text says, Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as their scribes. There was an almost eerie authority about Jesus and his words. It was an authority of speaking that no one else had. It was remarkable and breathtaking to listen to Jesus speak. Jesus is the one whose words had such a dramatic effect on Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes that they were amazed at him, Mark 12:17, and it came to the point that they did not dare to ask him any more questions, Mark 12:34. So stunned were they by the wisdom and the authority that was coming out of his mouth. The breath of Jesus' mouth has power to kill the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2:8. From the mouth of Jesus comes a sharp two-edged sword, Revelation 1.16, a sword with which he strikes the nations, Revelation 19.15, a sword with which he slays the wicked, Revelation 19.21, picking up on Isaiah 11.4. Well, our last verse this morning is Isaiah 11.5. Of the branch man it is said, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Yes, the branch man, said Isaiah, will be clothed with righteousness and faithfulness. This pair of characteristics, righteousness and faithfulness, are used often in scripture to to describe Yahweh himself in places like Psalm 33.4 and 36.6 and Psalm 89.14. John Oswald is helpful again. He helps us meditate on these terms, righteousness and faithfulness. Listen to what he says. He says, righteousness is that capacity for doing the right thing in all circumstances. Imagine (laughs) doing the right thing in all circumstances and involves keeping one's promises. Faithfulness comes from the root, which means to be dependable or true. So fundamental to both words is the idea of an integrity or consistency which results in complete 
dependability. That's Jesus. These were the characteristics that the Israelite people saw in their God and longed for in their king. What Isaiah was depicting in the Messiah was someone who would combine divine traits with a human presence. Close quote. Jesus, the branch man, is the Messiah and new David who is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, John 5.22. The final judgment of the world will be undertaken by Jesus in righteousness, Acts 17.31. And Jesus is called faithful and true Revelation 19.11. The branch man Jesus is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but I think the picture of Jesus that's given to us in these opening verses of Isaiah 11 is a staggering, exalted picture. 730 years or so before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesied Jesus. Jesus is the sprout and branch who grew from the stump of Jesse. Jesus is the new and better David. And if you feel like shouting, go ahead. He's the new and better David who was born into the world long after the majesty and wealth and power of David's line had faded almost to nothing. And then Jesus is born. Jesus is the king upon whom the fullness of the Spirit of God rests. Jesus is the one who was born into the world on the first Christmas and who is coming again to do the final transformation and Ty Pennington renovation of the world. But better than Ty Pennington or Mike Holmes. Jesus is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge reside. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the crucified and risen Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by his cross. Jesus is the judge who judges by better parameters than any earthly judge as he looks into the heart of all matters and judges with perfect righteousness. Jesus is the champion of the poor and the downtrodden. Jesus is the one whose word is like a sharpened authoritative sword. Jesus is faithful and true. He is righteous and just. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is shepherd. He is captain. He is redeemer. He is cornerstone. Emmanuel. Alpha and Omega. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Prince of peace. The bread of life. May Jesus, the glorious branch man, be your portion. I mean that. Be your portion this entire Christmas season. May his presence follow you and surround you and approach you sweetly in the midnight hour when you are anxious about something. May he draw near to you. May his love and power, his comfort and peace and victory be real to you throughout this entire season. And if you have yet to know him, I implore you, don't delay Please come and approach me or one of our leaders after service. We would love 
to pray with you, to get literature into your hands, to help you flourish in relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we are a people full of praise and thanksgiving as we consider your sending the branch man, your son, Jesus Christ, to be the branch that flourishes and sprouts from the stump of Jesse, the everlasting king to whom you have given an everlasting covenant, the one who was crucified doing kingly work on the cross and has risen from the dead, who is coming again in great power. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, and I pray for all these beloved people that you would follow each one richly and powerfully, give peace where it is lacking, give comfort where it is lacking, Give hope where it is lacking, dear Lord, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Beloved, go forth from here with the word as a lamp to your feet and as a light to your pathway. Go forth with your face always toward Christ, who is the light of the world, who goes before you. Amen.